Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here as usual to answer your questions on practice of the Buddha's teaching. So this session is an opportunity to bridge the gap between Buddhist theory and Buddhist practice. You might have questions about your practice and you, we can provide theory about the things that you experience, or maybe you have questions about how to apply Buddhist teachings practically. And those are the sorts of questions that we're looking to answer. So, as usual, you can post your questions in the chat at any time. We'll spend the first 15 minutes letting people come in and ask their questions and giving our volunteers an opportunity, a chance to, and the time to uh, arrange the questions and prepare them. And in the meantime, it's the 15 minutes for silent meditation to clear your mind and cultivate mindfulness to allow you to appreciate the teachings and understand the teachings and maybe ask some more questions after you've done a little bit of practice. So I will be back at 15 minutes after the hour to begin answering any questions you may have.
All right, we're back. So from here on, we will begin to answer questions. I'd ask that the chat be limited to questions only from here on. Anything else will just be removed. If you have questions, you can continue to ask them. If you've asked your questions or if you don't have questions, well, just stay mindful and listen. Hopefully it will be of value. Do you have questions? I find a lot of time while practicing that I feel like I'm progressing and I gain this sense of pride in a way and it takes me away from practice. Do you have any advice for this? Well, you, you really shouldn't look at it as though something takes you away from practice. That thing should be your object of practice. It doesn't there's not a thing called practice that it takes you away from, right? So that's what you're experiencing. We're so used to judging our experiences as being bad or good or so on. And, well, that's kind of what's going on here, right? You feel like you're progressing, so you judge it as good. There's probably liking. And then this thing that you call pride takes you away from the practice. You dislike that. But uh, even the sense of pride, you know, it should be taken as an object of mindfulness. You can note liking or disliking or that sort of thing. You can even say proud if you realize that you're proud. So pretty simple. It's not an issue. Just take it as an object. When I am walking in the sun and I am noting walking, but then I notice the sun hit my skin, do I continue to note walking? Do I note pleasure if I feel pleasure? Or do I just note the feeling of hot temperature? Well, if you're doing formal walking meditation, it doesn't sound like you're doing formal walking meditation, but if you were, um, you would have to kind of choose. And you probably wouldn't stop and note, you'd have to stop walking and note the feeling of heat or so on. And if you like it, say liking. If it feels pleasurable, you can say pleasure. But uh, it sounds like you're probably not doing formal practice, so it's fine to just try and note whatever you can. All of these things that you've mentioned are valid objects of noting. It's not like there's some magic to it that you have to pick the right one or else something bad happens. Mindfulness is a skill, and so taking your the present object as a object of mindfulness is going to be valuable. It's going to train you to see things as they are. All of these things that you talk about are things that you can see as they are, and that will be beneficial. It'll be a skill that will be beneficial to develop, and it'll give you a perspective that is quite beneficial. I notice that every day I have this desire to hear about the teachings. Is this something I should watch out for because I can become attached to this, or is this perfectly fine? As, is, as with everything, we're not really trying to put judgment on things. So if you desire to hear about the teachings, that can be an object of mindfulness. You just say wanting, wanting. If you like something, like you hear a teaching and you like it, you'd say liking, liking. Again, it's just about the perspective and uh, the familiarity with things. 
Should we expose ourselves to our aversions to learn about them? Well, you shouldn't actively try to expose. It's not worth it to try and actively trigger aversion. There's issues with that. There's some kind of um, issue of control. And there's some anticipation involved. You're much better off uh, and much, much more valuable to get a sense of how your mind works naturally and how, how ordinary experience affects your mind. So you, shouldn't, you should take the, the stance of not avoiding aversions, but you don't really benefit simply from having your aversions come up. I mean, it's not, it's not the aversions that we really want to learn about. It's just reality that we want to learn about. And that's why I say it doesn't really matter which object you pick as as the object of mindfulness if there seems like there's many just pick whichever is clearest why because when you when you know about one object of experience you know about them all all we're trying to learn is very simple things that apply to all arisen experiences and that is that they are impermanent unsatisfying and uncontrollable although there's no there's no special experience that's going to give you a better understanding of that than another just whatever is in the present moment Apart from sati, what other mental qualities have to be proactively present during meditation? Yeah, I wouldn't worry about which mental qualities have to be proactively present. I mean, really, proactively is probably probably um, misguided thinking that you have to, like, as though it was some kind of soup that you have to keep adding things to, and if I don't add salt, then it won't taste good. That that sort of thing. There's no adding stuff like that. When you practice mindfulness, all the good qualities are there. Or they, they will be from time to time, and the better you get at it, the more often those good qualities will be there. It's not like you have to go around looking for other qualities. There are many qualities that you should know about because they give you hints at when you are imbalanced or lacking and help you to have a clearer picture of what to pay attention to. Being able to notice when you're drowsy, for example, and you know, oh, I don't have enough effort, but you don't try to f add effort. You just note the drowsiness and that sort of thing. Or you maybe you switch postures or, or whatever, realizing oh, I've been sitting for too long, that's why I'm drowsy. I should get up and stand or do walking or something like that. When engaged in activities in daily life, I have difficulty noting because so many things are happening at once. Is there a single default object that I should focus on and note in most instances? Well, the body's a good default object, so you can always go back to the four postures of walking, standing, sitting, or lying. But having difficulty noting is, isn't something to complain about. That's just the, na the nature of it. Difficulty noting is the name of the game. You, you, it's a challenge. It's a skill you have to develop. So rather than think of it as a, a sign that it's impossible or that you just get a reason to give up, you know, appreciate that difficulty is, is important. And not be discouraged when you're not very good at it. So we were all not very good at everything until we practiced. 
So many things are happening at once. You can just note something like overwhelmed or distracted. Those are good notes for that sort of occasion. I have mostly experienced thoughts during meditation, but lately I am experiencing images like in dreams and used noting mental image, mental image. Is this correct? Oh, you just note seeing, seeing. Much simpler. Doesn't matter whether you're seeing something external or it's a mental seeing, it's still an experience of seeing. There's six senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, and they can all occur without stimuli from the outside. But seeing is, I guess, the most common, so you just note seeing, seeing. Are the terms sampajanya and tirasanya synonymous and both refer to the same mental quality? No, they're very different. I mean, what they do have in common is the same root, but that's kind of coincidental. This, the root, as you see at the ending, right, It looks they look the same, and that's because they both, have, both use the root nya. And uh, the ja is just a, because of Sanskrit, how, how the original or the, the more formal root is gya, which, anyway, it's complicated. But the janya and the nya are, are, are the same. It's the root in regards to knowing. But sanya is a very different word from sampajanya. Sanya is just recognition, basically. When you recognize something or you're aware that something is like something else. So no, these are sampajanya refers to wisdom. Tirasanya just as the tira means strong. So it's when you reaffirm your your recognition of something. That's what leads to mindfulness. Sampajanya is the wisdom that comes from mindfulness, basically. You said meeting with others is for speaking tamma or to be in silence. Is it impractical? It is impractical for my acquaintances. Is it compassionate to generate non-dhamma thoughts for people uncomfortable with silence? Is it compassion and wisdom? Or is this view ignorance and delusion or behavior of a fool? Um, well, compassion would be wanting people not to suffer, and that doesn't that isn't you don't get that result by um, encouraging non-dhamma discussion. So, I mean, it it might come from a place of compassion, I suppose, but it's not very useful or practical. I mean, compassion is really much better as a, a thought or a, a, um, an persp- an outlook, um, a frame of mind where you wish for people to be free from suffering. Um, and in, in fact, I would argue that it's much more compassionate to help people face their suffering than to try and appease their craving for, or appease their discomfort. Trying to alleviate people's suffering is not the way to free them from suffering. Funny enough, that uh, if you do whatever you can to help people avoid having to face their problems, it's not very 
helpful, not very beneficial to them. Uh, I mean, that being said, I wouldn't worry too much about non-dhamma discussion. It's one of the far, far more subtle forms of of unwholesomeness. Much more important are, of course, abstaining from lying or harsh speech or speech or gossip, like malicious speech, to, uh, trying to break people apart, that sort of thing. Well, useless speech is the hardest one. Good to to be aware of it. It's certainly not uh, to anyone's benefit to encourage it, just because people are uncomfortable with silence. I mean, the point is again, um, not uh, helping people to avoid having to face the silence. It's not going to make it better. It's not going to make them better able to deal with the problem. Right? You're always going to. Uh, help them to avoid their problems that doesn't doesn't work in the long run it doesn't benefit anyone i feel a sense of numbness after meditation is it that i am so accustomed to feel or react to emotions and i become less vulnerable to emotions and reactions through meditation it isn't anything, it's just a feeling of a sense of numbness. It's impermanent, unsatisfying, and uncontrollable. It's not a sign of anything. I mean, we, we take it as a rule not to see anything, not to um, not to ascribe meaning to our experiences. So when you feel numb, it's just numbness. If you're afraid of it or worried about it, well, that's worry or fear. If you dislike it or like it or whatever, all of those things you have to note. They're just experiences. I wouldn't make anything of that at all. Certainly not us. It's not the uh, not the prescribed goal of meditation. So it's not something you would ascribe meaning to. Oh, this is what it's quote unquote supposed to be like. There's no supposed to be like. Mindfulness is supposed to be clear and alert and aware and objective and non-judgmental. That's about it. But if you feel numb, well, that's just numbness. Nothing special or strange about it. I mean, strange is, is interesting. The fact that you're experiencing something that might be strange to you is valuable only to the in the very limited sense that um, the understanding of the capacity for strange things to occur is is a awakening to the reality of impermanence. So when you start to get a sense of the how how normal it is for strange things to happen, then you get a better sense of the reality of impermanence. It makes you more familiar with the unpredictable nature of reality. And the the, the result is, and the reason that why that's useful is, it makes you more flexible, less uh, rigidly attached to things being a certain way it frees you from expectations you start to give up expectations because you realize they're futile because you can't predict exactly what's going to happen all this comes from the sense of the strange the sense of oh that's strange or that's strange oh i didn't expect that as that happens more and more you'll become more comfortable with uh, the unpredictable nature of life and that's very valuable I and mean, that's core to Buddha, the buddhist teachings
I regret learning about so many practices and teachings now, because thinking they might be wrong makes me feel like I am arrogant to reject teachings from senior monks. How can I get past this doubt? It's just, again, it's just a meditation object. There's nothing uh, special as a obstacle about that. You just note it. If you have doubt, just say doubting, doubting. I mean, here I am giving you uh, a very specific meditation technique, and you might think, oh, well, why should I follow this, or should I doubt? Is this the right way? Or, um, But, you know, I don't have anything to tell you except this is what will work, because it will work. I mean, if you note doubting, doubting, confused, and disliking, and arrogant, you can even note. So arrogant can be a slippery one, because it's hard to be mindful when you have delusion, but it's okay. I mean, you can note it when you realize you were being arrogant. Uh, you can note disliking, worry, all of these things. But uh, don't make too much out of this. I mean, you regret you're creating a narrative and you're making a sense that I have this problem, right? There will be a, there will be an ego, an ego, or the sense of self attached to this sort of thing where I have this problem. Don't make a problem out of it. I mean, whenever it comes up, whenever things that you identify as this come up, note those things. Doubt is just doubt. Don't try to get past it. Try and take it as an object of mindfulness. Just try and see more clearly about it and about all the things surrounding it. And it's often in, these things are often indicative of deeper issues that we don't appreciate. That uh, and and that's why they don't go away is because we have this deeper issue of being having the we call the anusaya, the latent tendency or the underlying tendency towards these things, towards doubt, for example. I noticed lust when I am mindfully eating. Is lust just best described as the want for any pleasure? That's just a word. Lust we usually reserve for sexual desire. Uh, you don't usually talk about lust as relates to food, but maybe that's what you're talking about. You, you feel sexual desire when you're eating, but it doesn't sound like that. Normally, that's how we use the word, but again, just a word. So you notice desire. That's that's the point. And wanting or desire, you can just note wanting or desiring, craving, whatever seems clearest. They're just words. I wouldn't worry too much about them. What is the difference between SN Goenka Vipassana and Theravada Vipassana? Well, SN Goenka was an Indian man who went to practice in Burma under um, a government official, I think, and yeah, a government official in Burma, who was a Theravada Buddhist. And so I can pretty much guarantee from all that I know of S.N. Goenka is that he is very much Theravada, and his organization is entirely Theravada. Now, I don't know if that's changed over time. I doubt it has. But, uh, you know, if it has, I don't, I'm not aware of it, and I doubt that that's the case. So I certainly don't want to cast any sort of doubt upon him as not being Theravada. I mean... It's undoubtedly true in my mind that Goenka was a Theravada Buddhist and that the Vipassana he taught was Theravada Buddhism. I don't, um, I mean, I think he maybe 
took some liberties, but not really liberties. He came up with his own technique and his own formula. But none of that strays from Theravada Buddhism, as far as I can think. I don't, and I think our practice is better, but our practice is also Theravada Buddhism, and and so um, it's not a matter. It's not a, it's not the right question you're asking, um, because there is no difference. I mean, it's it's like saying, I, mean, I don't know what it's saying. It's like, what, what's the difference between me and a Theravada monk? I mean, I am a Theravada monk. That's basically what you're asking. So it's not a great question. Uh, but you may be thinking that I've talked about ours as being Theravada, so you're referring to what we do. What we do is a different sort of technique. A lot of the theory is 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 identical, which is you know one of the great things and great things I would appreciate about Estan Goenka is how good his theory is. I don't think his technique is as good as ours, but I'm sure his people think the opposite. So. I'm not concerned about that, and I'm not going to try to convince people of that. That's just truth. I mean, I believe ours is better. They believe theirs is better. That's normal. That's to be expected. Just a different technique. You often mention noting without being attached to self but I do not understand practically how to remove the self while noting. How do we keep the self aside? Well, we're not in the business of removing things actively or keeping things to the side. I mean, the self isn't a thing anyway. It's not like you could remove it. It doesn't exist. It's just an idea. Um, the point is when you're mindful, there isn't that idea doesn't arise. When you note, that's the whole point of noting is it creates an awareness that is free from that. In that moment, there isn't that ad addition of me or mine under my control. There's no sense of self at all. There's just the experience of the experience. Are we manifesting the future in the present moment? I don't even know what that means. We aren't mass manifesting anything. I mean, we're just um, observing and reacting. That's what beings do. Um, are we manifesting it? It's just philosophical. I don't, I don't really have any comment on this question. What should one do with a broken Buddha statue? It feels wrong to throw it away. It may be bad karma. They generally recommend you either um, bury it, that's what I've heard people say, or you place it under a tree. Yeah, that's what Buddhists do in Thailand. They put them under trees. I think bury it is probably the more orthodox or the more uh, approved of method. I wouldn't worry too much about it. Can my nine-year-old son take the basic course, or is he too young? Nine. Nine isn't technically too young, but no, it's not technically too young. So if he's 
into it and understands what it means. I mean, in our tradition, we we um, we have an at-home course that we encourage people to take first. So I would recommend you start there. I mean, he'd, ha- he'd have to be a pretty special nine-year-old. Not that they don't exist, but he'll he'll have to be pretty special to be able to even get through the at-home course. Meaning, he has to do at least an hour a day, half walking, half sitting getting up to two hours a day, half walking, half sitting, let alone the intensive course, which is two weeks of many hours a day. Certainly those nine-year-olds exist and have existed in the past, but wouldn't be too discouraged if he's not able to do that at nine years old. It'd be remarkable. Notice more frustration when doing walking meditation. What are the reasons for doing walking before sitting? Well, there's a good reason. (laughs) The frustration. You want to learn about these things. You're the one who reacts to things with frustration. You can't blame the walking meditation. That's a great reason for doing it, is to become more patient and have to face your frustration. You're looking at it wrong, and that's feeding the frustration. You have to stop walking, put your feet together, and say, frustrated, frustrated. You've got to taste it until your mind says, oh, I get it. This frustration's a bad idea. And then your mind just doesn't get frustrated. Walking meditation builds patience. If you read our booklet explains the five, gives a little bit of detail on the five reasons for practicing walking meditation. The biggest one for doing it before sitting is because of the the stability that it gives you. It's a support for the sitting meditation. It prepares you well for sitting. The Buddha said the concentration lasts into the sitting. Does an arahant still engage with concepts once he or she has attained the ultimate nibbana? As long as one engages with concepts mindfully, is this not considered delusion? For example, reading books, the news, socializing in general, should we try and emulate the behavior of an arahant in respect to their relationship to conventional reality? Well, I mean, you should try to try to emulate the behavior of an arahant in in more in more important ways. I mean, concepts is, is misleading. I wouldn't focus on that. Concepts, reality. An arahant is free from greed, free from anger, free from delusion. They see reality clearly. So I would try to emulate them then in that respect. I mean, you practicing to see through concepts is valuable means of a way of me a way of doing that. A way of emulating arahants for sure, but I wouldn't worry too much about ideas like concepts. I mean, arahants obviously still engage with concepts; otherwise, they couldn't talk with other people or use objects like a bowl or food. But they see these things clearly. They don't have greed or anger or delusion about them. I heard a monk teach that the citta is separate from the five aggregates. 
and is the part of us that knows and goes into the next life. Is this in line with your interpretations and teaching? That is absolutely against the Buddhist teachings. That is not Buddhism. Anyone who teaches that is teaching something that is outside of the purview of Theravada Buddhism. Probably most Buddhism, I would think. Um, I guess I'm not really sure, but Orthodox Buddhism, for sure. A, Jitta is absolutely not separate from the five aggregates. B, um, it is the part of us that knows that's valid to say about jitta. Goes into the next life, well, nothing goes from one moment to the next, let alone into the next life. Oh, pretty simple, yeah. No, it's not about my interpretation. There's no valid interpretation of the teachings that supports that teaching. So I'd be concerned about anyone who teaches that thus. Can a Sotapanna always enter the state of fruition when he wants to? No. No, it takes work. It takes preparation. It takes, um, often it takes even uh, supportive goodness and wholesomeness from past lives to be able to easily and readily enter into it. For those who don't have that upanisaya, or wasana, we might say that from past lives, um, they'll have to put a lot of work in to experience fruition again and again. What is the cause of attention-seeking behavior? For me, this includes feeling hurt and suffering when it seems people reject me. What specific practice, apart from insight meditation, would you suggest for this? I don't suggest any practice apart from insight meditation <laughs> or satipatthana vipassana. No, that's the practice I suggest. So I like that people are getting creative and trying to make me answer things that are more interesting because it's not very interesting to keep if i keep answering oh just practice what i teach just practice this thing that i have a link at the bottom of the screen just note it i'm getting creative and you want new and more interesting answers but unfortunately it's pretty simple so when you feel hurt and suffering one thing I could, could say, and I've said many times, of course, is that we're not really interested in the causes of things. We're just interested in the nature of them. We're only looking to see three things, impermanent, suffering, and non-self, and that's more about the nature of things than the cause of them. So when you have attention-seeking behavior, wanting or feeling hurt and suffering, you should note those things, that's all. Fortunately, it's pretty simple, and I don't have a lot of diverse and interesting answers or other practices. Once we have clear knowing of the three characteristics through experience, what advantages are there of doing satipatthana vipassana compared to anapanasati, for example? No aversion is present. Once you have clear knowledge of the three characteristics, uh, I mean, 
that's a deceptively simple statement, but clear knowledge of any one of the three characteristics is the moment before the experience of Nibbana, so there's nothing left to be done. You practice satipatthana vipassana in order to see in order you practice satipatthana in order to give rise to vipassana, which means clear knowing of the three characteristics, and it's really in the end just one or another of them is is clear, and uh, the next moment is cessation. So, yeah, there's nothing to be done after that. That's just the goal. And that's enlightenment. Why isn't there a unanimous meditation practice that leads to vipassana based on the Satipatthana Sutta in Orthodox Theravada Buddhism? Well, people have different... characters and that goes both for teachers and students and sometimes those characters are um, are wrong what's the word are problematic and introduce uh, harmful qualities so so even if they don't there will be some uh, change like take, for example, how I learned the practice. I, I f think of myself as someone who learned a very, very um, specific type of, of practice from a very specific teacher. And I learned it really, had it drilled into me over the course of a year, just hours and hours spent almost every day with my teacher, with one teacher hearing him say the same things again and again and again and really getting a, a strong sense of how he taught. And yet I start to notice that the way I teach has changed and it changes not just based on who I am, but it cha it's changed based on who my audience is. Teaching Westerners is a little bit different and I couldn't really teach the way he teaches exactly. I mean, there's it's small things, but it does change. Honestly, I mean, the technique itself, so the meditation practice itself really hasn't changed unless I've just slipped and introduced something unknowingly. Uh, I mean, pretty sure that what I'm doing is exactly the same, but I just mean to say that it, it changes for those reasons, because of the audience and because of who I am and, and how I understand it. I've seen people who I've taught and people who my teacher taught also adding things, and some of them added things that were, as I said, problematic. And that sort of thing can lead to really weird practices, but can also lead to a disappearance of a tradition and a renewal of a tradition of a of a new technique that can be equally valid again under a new teacher, but kind of uh, unique in a new way, like it has to be sort of rediscovered and reinterpreted. And because it doesn't have the direct connection with with an original teacher, it's going to be new. I mean, I'm just saying that technique isn't, uh, this is what I should say, is that the technique isn't really the most important thing. And there are many ways of applying the same principles. 
Um, I, I guess what I would say is, as far as uh, technique that is um, is long or withstand that has withstood the test of time is the mantra. You can see in the ancient text the use of this mantra, repeating a word, parikama. Uh, 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 they call it parikama bhavana, where you repeat to yourself, like as we do, rising, falling, or the counting can even be one when you count your breaths, one in, one out, one in, two out, two that sort of thing. When you know buddho, buddho, the Buddha. So that's pretty enduring. Um, the sixth parts to the walking step or even just walking meditation in general is pretty enduring. I mean, there's not a lot of variation. There are some weird practices out there that do vary, but I would say what we do is pretty orthodox. And then, of course, there's also the Satipatthana Sutta that gives some instruction that we follow as best we can. I mean, it's just fairly general instruction, but there are lots of very old old techniques that have withstood the test of time, like the 32 parts of the body. There's metta bhavana. That's, that's very standard, sort of. I would say there's some pretty unanimous practices. Oh, but you say that lead to vipassana, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think ours is pretty orthodox. But there are options, I guess you could say. So uh, watching the stomach, for example, is just one of the things the Buddha mentioned. And the Buddha did mention it. But it's one in a long list of things that you could use as an object. And there's kind of a reason for using it. And I guess the other thing is that there are two sort of orthodox ways of attaining or of, of attaining vipassana, of attaining wisdom. And one is through the practice of samatha first, and one is not. And the way we practice is not with samatha first. And that's what leads to complications, complexity. So some people do samatha first, and they have different practices for being mindful of the objects of the samatha meditation. There is nothing worth clinging to. All beings in samsara have delusion. The teachings focus on right view. What is the relation between clinging, delusion, and wrong view? Well, delusion and wrong view are, are uh, sort of bound up with each other. You don't need wrong view to have delusion. You can have delusion without wrong view. Think. Yeah. Well, hmm. I mean, ignorance is at the root, right? And there are different types of delusion. I mean, cling delusion is present in any unwholesome mind state. So when you have clinging, there's also delusion. Right, so it's not always wrong view because some clinging has right or wrong view and some clinging doesn't have wrong view. But it's still clinging and it still has delusion because delusion is at the root of every unwholesome state. I don't know, I mean, this seems like a fairly intellectual question. I wouldn't worry too much about the relationship. Just try and 
Note the clinging as best you can. Sometimes when a person is misbehaving, I get angry and note the feeling. Then I remind myself to not let their bad actions become my bad actions so I won't react. Is it okay to do this after noting? And I'm not going to scold you for doing that. I mean, I'm not going to criticize you for it. It's not really anything to do with our practice. I, it's not what I would recommend my students to do. Um, I mean, the one, it's just a very minor remark. It's, is that the problem, the problem with that is you're trying to control yourself. You're trying to enforce some kind of behavior. I mean, even nudging or, you know, as you say, reminding yourself. And it's not really the best approach. You're much better off just trying to observe your mind and try and understand your your tendencies because a better understanding of how you do let bad actions become your own or that sort of thing um, the more you're going the, the less power they're going to have and the less um, inclination you're going to have towards them you'll just see them for what they are which is a cause of suffering and you'll just disincline towards them Can you elaborate on be your lamp or be your own refuge by the Buddha? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you, you find your own freedom from suffering. I mean, it's not hard to understand. Nobody else is going to free you from suffering. This isn't a theistic religion. The four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha said, that's how you are your own refuge. How important is having a teacher while practicing? Pretty important. Unless you're a long-time practitioner and you've done practice under a teacher, or unless you're like a Buddha or something. If you're a Pacheka Buddha, you don't need a teacher. But uh, unless you're... I mean, a lot of people think that they're special. And most most of those people who think that they're, they don't need a teacher do actually need a teacher or would benefit greatly from having a teacher. So be careful before you think you don't need a teacher because chances are you do. And it certainly can't hurt. I mean, if anything, it will just make you humble because you you have to put up with someone who you don't need, right? You have to put up with someone who is telling you things you already know, and that takes patience. Um, that's at the very least if you were someone who didn't need a teacher. But most likely everyone needs it. Pretty much everyone needs a teacher. Practically speaking, everyone needs a teacher. You're not really going to find a person who doesn't. Not in this world. It's very important. Is it generally better to not engage in socializing? 
Since I've started practicing, I can see how distracted simple talks and conversations make me and occupy my mind. Yes and yes. I mean, yes, it's better to not engage in socializing, absolutely. And yes, the fact that you see that, that's, uh, that's a sign of progress. I mean, good, a good, good thing to hear. This is a sign that this person who posted this question has some greatness of mind and has come to see the futility and the negative consequences of idle chatter and of, of craving, you know, the, the, the desire for pleasure that comes from engagement and the stress involved with needing other people's approval, etc., etc. Bhante, we've come to the end of our time. We've crossed the hour, and you've answered every question in the top tier. All right. Well, thank you all for your questions. Thank you, Jim and Chris, for your help. Wish everyone a good week and peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sahadu. Sahadu.